Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of welcoming to the podcast Dr. Michael Baltudis, who is Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh. We are talking about a brand new Sunni publication called The Festival of Indra, Innovation, Archaism, and Revival in a South Asian Performance. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Raj. It's great to be here. You know, this figure, Indra, you know, whether we have a cursory knowledge of Hinduism or we've taken an intro course or, you know, you know, I was fairly certain that Indra was a Vedic god who wasn't really worshipped anymore. And now, according to the title of your book, there's a festival of Indra. Is this, is this the case? Tell us about this. This, this, this is the case. And this is uh, one of the things that initially drew me into this festival. Uh, in, 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 in the preface, I sort of give the, the narrative of, of how I arrived at, at studying the festival, uh, which was as a grad student, maybe second, third year, I was in Fred Smith's ritual class perusing the, the stacks at the University of Iowa Library and came across a, uh, I think it was a translation of, uh, of the Brayat Samhita, one of these seventh century uh, sort of royal texts that that prescribed and described the the festival of Indra, and I had exactly that same reaction of I didn't know even back in the day, uh, still post Vedic, uh, early medieval India, there was a festival of Indra, uh, and then I realized that this festival is still, as I thought, still being celebrated in Kathmandu, Nepal today. And, you know, in early research, I thought, wow, this is a, an unbroken tradition from like the Vedas to early medieval India to, you know, this September in, in Kathmandu, Nepal. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not so naive anymore to, to, to think that it's an unbroken tradition over three, 3,500 years or something. Uh, but yeah, Indra is absolutely still present there in, in Kathmandu, uh, being worshipped among uh, the many other gods and goddesses present there. Dude, there are so many fascinating aspects of this research. One, the interplay between sort of, you know, a festival, you know, lived religion, um, ethnography, and, you know, the textual traditions. And most people who study Indra are textualists for obvious reasons. Um, but it's utterly fascinating. Um, whenever I teach either world religions or a particular Hinduism course, I invite people to think of Hinduism not as a religion, <laughs> but as sort of an ecosystem or an amalgamation because nothing gets thrown out and everything kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, there's no founder, everything is sent off in a hood. It's like, okay, this is a great example where you have this ancient, ancient Vedic deity and arguably the function, whether uh, archetypal or social function of that deity uh, clearly we can say hey let's worship uh, the great goddess who, who does kingship uh and yet here we are having a festival of indra i think that's uh pretty cool um so tell us about uh what should i ask you first tell us about how you collected your information what was that process like for you what sources are you looking at or what were your conversations like yeah, yeah, like you said, there is a, a textual portion of this, and 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 typically when we think about Indra, we're thinking about the the Rig Veda. We're thinking about the mo- most ancient stratum of what we might refer to as uh, as as Hindu, the religion, the religion known as Hinduism. Um, the the textual component in you know what I'm calling the early medieval, some of the the early Puranas. 
even some of the later Puranas, the, the Kalika Purana, which is definitely a, a Shakta text. Uh, you know, there are sort of hints maybe in the, the Devi Mahatmya, uh, a text that you certainly know well. Um, and then I've all, heard of it. I've, I've uh, you've heard of, heard of it. it. Yeah, yeah. You may have thought about it a, a time or two. <laughs> Uh, and then there's also the ethnographic portion. So once I I was you know scanning the uh, scanning the the stacks at the the University of Iowa for the first time, and then came across a reference to the festival in Kathmandu. Uh, I had been to India once before already at that time. Was headed there a second time. Really, Nepal was was not on my radar at all. And I think for even for a lot of of academics who study India, Nepal is just this uh, other place, right? It's in the Himalayas. It's outside of uh, the cultural sphere, the geographical uh, area. I mean, it's South Asia, but it's not South Asia. Um, and as soon as I, as soon as I realized that there was this festival, I thought, I, I, I got to see this. So it's in it's in the the fall. Uh, it's in the autumn. It's usually early to mid September, uh, which is not always conducive for the the academic year. Um, so you know, figured out how to how to get there and uh, and see the festival a, uh, a a few times. So there's the the textual portion and the ethnographic portion. And you know, one thing this comes out of my dissertation from from way back in the day, and it's you know it's it's re- thoroughly revised. Uh, trust me. And whereas in the, this dissertation, I I, I wanted, uh, I basically kept those two things separate, the textual and the ethnographic. What I really wanted to do with the book project that that, that we are talking about here is figure out ways to uh, to to combine them and to see that the ways that thematically the textual and the ethnographic are are really two parts of of the same whole right you use the word archetypal uh i use the same word archetypal in 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 the book um maybe in a slightly different way but just to think maybe holistically of all of these different components as representing the same uh, different facets of what i call the indra festival tradition so whether it goes by you know one of a half a dozen different names whether it's in india or nepal the city or the village um, anytime we, we we come across something that we we can refer to as part of the interfestival tradition, it's there. It's part of it, and it's my job to sort of uh, try and figure out how all of these components, over the course of fifteen hundred years, fit together. I love the interplay of um, of ethnographic and textual dimensions, and um, owing to a variety of factors. One, you know, uh, scholarship. You know, the, the, the people who study or what they have their book later, they have their their, their nose in a book, <laughs> day in and day out. And so, scholarship really it's a textual mode of acquiring information often, uh, at least initially. Um, also, we we're in a culture which we've internalized this idea that religion is in texts, and the text is you know that this is the, the, the carved in stone, right? Uh, and so, just softening that and sort of, um, you know, seeing what, for example, the Durga Puja can teach us about the Devi Mahatma or vice versa. Um, I find that interplay fascinating. I just, just randomly, it just dawned on me, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you edit a book review series for the IJHS, for the International Journal of Hindu Studies for the Generalist Audience. Yeah, um, right. And I just, it just happens 
that myself and a co-author, uh, Nora Van Brussels, are putting the finishing touches on a paper where we're looking at, you know, the goddess texts, right? The Devi Mahatmya, the Bhadrakali Mahatmya. And we're looking at this profound Kerala festival intense and all this technicolor glory. And, and, um, and it, it's so rich. It's so rich. Like, do, do you, um, how would you characterize the interplay in your own work between the ethnographic uh, data, if you will, and the textual data? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, a lot of different ways. W- one of my early sort of aha moments was uh, so the the Indra festival in in a nutshell, as we see it in the early medieval tradition, and what's the revived tradition uh, from the early eighteen hundreds in in Kathmandu is the the royal uh, the royal officers uh, associated with the former king of Nepal. Go, travel from the city out to the forests, they cut down a tree, bring that tree back by hand over the course of several days. It lies sort of uh, in in state, prone on the eastern edge of the city. And then a few days later, it's the pole is pulled ceremoniously in sort of a, a, a royal entrance to the center of the city outside the palace. It's installed outside the palace. In the traditional, or the I should say, the early medieval festival, it's there for four days. Here in Kathmandu, it's there for eight days. That there's then a visarjana where it's disposed of, um, pulled south to the riverbank uh, and disposed of, of of there. That marks the end of the festival. And one of the things uh, that I noticed in, in regards to this question of textual and ethnographic interplay is I I, I walked with these folks for two and a half days from the forest back to the city, pulling the pole. Um, it's it's just labor. There's nothing necessarily ritually involved here. But what I noticed is that they engaged in uh, a chanting of obscenity. And obscenity is one thing that we see in many different Hindu festivals throughout India and Nepal. Um, when there is usually, it's, it's in, in the autumn, harvest time, uh, but it, it also signals the presence of death and danger and often the, the ancestors. When we look back at the early medieval texts, the Bariyat Samhita, the Puranas, uh, that, that, that what for me, what for them is two, two and a half days of, of pulling the pole, that's nowhere in the texts. The, the court poets, gurus, scribes spend virtually no time, typically one half verse saying, and then they pulled the pole, right? Then it arrived in the city. Uh, but there's two and a half days of, 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 of work and some of this obscenity. And, and what I recognized is that the textual component is really strictly focused on the court, uh, on royalty, on the, the Indra pole, representing the the stability of the king but in the contemporary festival we see all of these other rituals in the newar situation in Kathmandu that regard and attend to death and the ancestors repeatedly not only in the indra festival but also throughout the the entire late summer through autumn festival season so that's what I what I kind of hypothesized there, or at least attended to, is that the 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 textual record, right, these royal Sanskrit language Brahminical texts, they're missing something, 
And in fact, they're purposefully omitting certain information data rights that are really important on a local level for, for us to understand the full sort of archetypal holistic festival that's being celebrated there. I think what your what your conclusion or supposition conjecture is is arriving at is is a notion that I that um, that I attempt to communicate in various teaching contexts. Uh, mostly continuing studies these days, but I happen to be just finishing up a, a, a session on structureship as well for undergrads. But the whole notion of text is very different in the ancient Indian world, where it, it wasn't the case that they were ever composed for someone to look at absent tradition, absent a teacher, absent living culture. And they're almost like, um, they're almost, uh, they're props in many ways. You know, whether, whether it's ritual texts, whether it's yoga sutras, these are just props, condensation of an existing uh, lineal transmission. And so the whole notion of text, we really have to constantly constantly confront our own presuppositions about what that means uh, in, the, in the context. When we have things written down in Sanskrit, we're not, I'm not even sure we can call it a text per se as we're used to you know, text. I think another element of that is that those, those Sanskrit texts have a very specific function. And, and I think it's this is a both and situation with what you're saying. And and, and this point is that, you know, in, in uh, Sheldon Pollock says you know, that that none of these texts escaped the ambit of the court. They had a very they had a courtly function. They were they like these Indra festival texts were meant to support and to reinforce royal power. But in no way are these texts all-inclusive or holistic or archetypal there's this living tradition that is that is related in some way to this textual tradition um, but they they definitely do not represent the 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 same the same thing yeah fascinating and it's even it's even uh you've got me thinking about my own research on the Devi Mahatmya in terms of uh kingship and that clearly there's a there's a, there's a fascinating sophisticated structure that points to themes of kingship but one wonders you know you know clearly this is an integration of, an, of people didn't wake up 15 centuries ago and say hey we need a cosmic mommy let's do this you know right, right. There, there, there were no shortage there was no shortage of modes of religious expression at the time and so um yeah i think so, one of there's a tension of between what's happening on the ground what's happening in the world courts what's etc etc Definitely. Yeah. One of the other larger connections that I make is between the Indra festival, the Indra festival tradition and what we might call the, the Mahabharata tradition, again, intersecting with both text and practice. So the, the argument that I make in, in chapter one, it's one of the one of the first things I say is that the, the first place where we see the, the Indra festival is in the Mahabharata and it's in book one chapter 57, and I, I argue that the narrative, uh, the sort of linear narrative of the Mahabharata that we're all familiar with, the, the Pandavas and the Mahabharata War and Kurukshetra, that all actually, I, I argue, begins with an account of, of the Indra festival in, in, in chapter 57. And if we look at the Mahabharata through that, that lens, we see a couple of other places in the critical edition of the Sanskrit language text where the Indra festival in, in sort of different forms recurs through different uh, royal figures, the Chedi King Vasu. The other thing that I do in in my book is look towards the the living fest, the living Mahabharata festival tradition, 
both the Tamil and the Garhwali traditions and 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 what I see there being on the ground in in Kathmandu is that there are many, many moments when we see this interplay of 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 festival characters of sort of maybe not even divine beings or semi-divine beings, uh, but Indra's elephant, for example, uh, his vehicle that brings him down from heaven to the city of Kathmandu, to the central neighborhood, that elephant recurs in the Garwali Mahabharata tradition. And the figure of, of Draupadi and uh, her firewalk, that has a parallel in the, the Indra festival tradition with the figure of, of Indra's mother. The figure of, of Bhairav himself recurs in different ways throughout the Mahabharata tradition. So I mean, another, another thing that I, 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 I try to emphasize is in regards to this question of the textual versus the ethnographic is the entire Mahabharata tradition. Hiltabaito calls it a, a free-floating Mahabharata folklore, right, which sort of brings into its own ambit, uh, its own realm, different elements that are that are definitely not part of the critical edition of the text, but occur in different uh, folk traditions, folk performances of the epic, we see a lot of those same elements in what we might call the folk tradition or the urban folk tradition of the Indra festival in uh, in Kathmandu. Mm. Fascinating. So you mentioned a bit earlier about the timing being fall-ish. Do you do we know where in the Hindu calendar this happens? Is it Pithipaksha or is it the same time as the uh, goddess festival? Do we know when it happens? Sure. In, in in Kathmandu, it is the full moon of the month of Bhadrapad. So it's it's always um, early. It's right, right before Pithidipaksha, yes? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, um, the, the the preceding festival to the Indra festivals called uh, called the Saparu or, or Gaijatra, the cow festival that is completely concerned with ancestors. Uh, and then after that is uh, is the Sain Durga Puja. And then the following one, of course, is, is Diwali. But in, in Kathmandu, the uh, Tihar Diwali festival is almost completely concerned with the family and the ancestors, uh, not just with Lakshmi and wealth, though she's on the, the third day. So these uh, rights to the cows and crows and, and dogs are, are ways to think about the ancestors and the different directions that they go after death. And the the Indra festival is uh, the the uh, the Mahabharata the the textual tradition book book one of the of the text uh, locates it at the end of the year, so there's definitely a, a changing of the changing of the guard a changing of the calendar with the performance of the Indra festival and um, and you're right the the, the Pithapaksha comes comes next and and in the 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 textual tradition the Indra festival the Indra pole was lowered on the full moon day and then the the new month and possibly the new year began on the first day of uh, of the next half month the, the Kathmandu festival is a little bit different these these days maybe in the last uh, couple of centuries but there's definitely that interplay of life and death of the living citizens of the city versus the the ancestors uh, who are regarded in really in multiple ways throughout this festival and and many others throughout the autumn season fascinating 
Now, um, regarding, uh, say, the Indra that we see, uh, who's one of the main subjects or topics of, of the hymns in the, in the Riveda, what elements of Indra do we see um, uh, present still and what innovations do we see? Yeah, in terms of the Indra of the Rigveda and the, and the Indra of the festival. Yeah, so so two of the ways that we still see the the Vedic Indra is his association with with kingship. <clears throat> he is the the king, and the Indra festival has always been. And and despite the absence of the the Nepali king in the, the Hindu king in Nepal from uh, after two thousand eight, there are still elements, locales of royalty that that will always be there in the festival. The palace is always going to be, actually always, but I mean, will always be the uh, the locus of the, the festival that rites uh, emerge from, are performed in, and return to the palace throughout the Indra festival and other festivals throughout the, the, the calendar as well. So we see Indra as king still. Uh, we also see Indra as thief. And there are a number of cases throughout the epics, throughout the Rig Veda uh, and epics where Indra steals, let's see, he steals Soma, he steals uh, the horse for several different horse sacrifices. He steals a, in the Shatapata Brahmana, he steals a brick from the uh, Agniadhana of the Asuras and causes it to collapse. Um, and, and Indra is, is, is still a thief in, in, the, in the Kathmandu festival as well. In that he draws on the party, the story of the Parijata Harana, where uh, where Krishna steals the Parijata tree from Indra. In Kathmandu, it's Indra who steals the Parijat flower from the local Japu farmers in the city of of Kathmandu, and it's for that theft that Indra is accosted and arrested by the Japu farmers. So he maintains that that identity as thief. In other villages, uh, he steals a fruit uh, that's also uh, that's also for the ancestors, or he steals a cucumber. So in one of the neighboring villages, he's referred to as uh, as the cucumber thief god. Real local and and rustic. Um, the other identities that that he takes on here are. Uh, are, are sort of the, the, the tantric and the the cover of, of the book has that image that really unique image of Indra inside the palace with his arms ex- fully extended at his at his sides and and it's it's you know it's an image that we just we don't see that anywhere in in India there's no have you seen any Hindu deity god or goddess in that iconographical form I actually have not, but I, at the risk of sharing TMI on the on the podcast, I was I was uh, uh, doing a bit of writing over the weekend for a, an interview. Um, uh, what was I doing? It was for Times of India, and it was on um, uh, their interview. It was a written interview on the stories behind the post. It's my third, my public book. Uh, the stories behind the post, and I use this ridiculous example, hopefully insightful, in addition to being outrageous. That um, imagine we had asanas emerge from a Western context. You know, many of the many of the asanas. Uh, have namesakes uh, who are mythic characters like uh, Virabhadrasana or, or Bhairavasana, case in point, uh, yeah, or Anantasana, whatever. And so I said, imagine if in, a, in an alternate universe, uh, postures came out of a Western context and there was this posture called Moses Asana and the person had their arms outstretched, <laughs> creating a T-shape. And I'm thinking to myself, as I was looking at the book earlier today, that's the posture I was talking about and people may register, oh, 
that must relate to this point in his biography where he does what? He parts the Red Sea. And so yeah, right, 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 understanding right. that <clears throat> might be, you know, so I, I play with these ideas just to defamiliarize people with asanas and then refamiliarize them with this. And so, so no, I have not seen this yeah, anywhere yeah. other than maybe in some images of Jesus Christ, but it's a very different image. Uh, but it is a fascinating, uh, it really is, I mean, I mean, why is it that this is the only time it, why is why is this the only Hindu iconography where we see a, a deity with his arms outstretched? I think that's yeah. significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, so the uh, I'm I'm still on the question of uh, what new innovative identities does Indra take on? And and I argue that this is a a, a tantric image. And you know, I I was just reading through the chapter. And I probably spend a <laughs> too much time uh, making a, a, analogies and comparisons with other tantric deities in the Nepal Valley. But I think it was, at least at the time, I thought it was insightful to sort of establish this, this sort of tantric habitus within the, the Kathmandu Valley uh, and, and to familiarize readers with some of the ways that, uh, that gods and goddesses are harnessed for the power that they possess and our, that power is utilized by, uh, by human beings in order for the civic good. So there are, uh, there are goddesses, uh, mother goddesses, the Navadurga, who are, there's a narrative of them being harnessed, being miniaturized, being tossed in a bag uh, and taken home by a tantric priest uh, who then utilizes their power for, for his own good. And then at some point, the 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 goddesses are are released from the spell, and ever since then they dance throughout the city during the the Sain Durga Puja festival in in October. So we see them uh, fully masked dancing uh, dancing throughout the streets of the city as soon as the festival ends. Actually, they begin on uh, the Vijaya Dashami on the, the 10th day of, of the festival. But that's a story of the harnessing of, of deities, of gods and goddesses, and there are many other stories. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I argue that Indra is part of this larger tantric habitus where he himself is is, is accosted um and, and this is this is something at least superficially that everybody uh will tell me if you if you ask somebody in in nepal you look at the image of indra who has been uh the icon that has been raised onto this uh, this platform anywhere between 10 to 15 feet high off the street and you ask them what what's the story they'll tell you the story of Indra stealing the, pari, the flower from the Parijat tree, the Japu farmers accosting him, uh, arresting him, placing him, humiliating him um, by, by, by placing him high above the street. His uh, mother and the elephant uh, and the Bayrads all are present there as a way to release him and to combat the, the Japus and to free Indra from, from his Im imprisonment. So that's that's a common story that that everybody tells as an explanation for why Indra looks like this, and 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 using that as a jumping off point, I, I think about and uh, and in, in, the, in the book retell a lot of these stories of 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 tantra from from the valley um, as ways to contextualize this image um, of him being accosted um, his his mother in fact when uh, uh, his mother's doggy uh, from the 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 term dakini sort of a demoness and she leads the 
um, uh, she leads the deceased through the streets on a procession late on the, the main third day of the evening. And she also is, is accosted to a certain extent uh, with her arms extended in the same way. And, and anytime you see deities who are uh, exhibiting symptoms of possession, you always see one person on either side of them who are leading them through the streets in order to to harness that power and to restrict the 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 possession from going completely awry so it's the same iconographic form that we see with with indra there who you know by by extension um is is exhibiting some sort some form of possession as well I, uh, uh, there's a, there's, a, there's another another image. Uh, the only other image I asked you just uh, if you had seen anything like this. Uh, the only other image, and this is towards the conclusion of the book, uh, returns to the Tamil uh, Mahabharata tradition and uh, some of Alphiltabital's writings, and he actually does. Uh, refer to and display photo photographs of another deity uh, who does also exhibit the same form, uh, which relates to Bhairav uh, and the exact same stories that that uh, uh, that that occur to Bhairav in the Indra festival tradition in in Kathmandu as well. There are, I mean, it's I mean, there's so many fascinating aspects to this, the the utter syncretism, and you know what I see. Uh, I see parallels to this in the goddess festival and parallels between the Vedic sources on Indra and the festival versus Devi Mahatmya that, that was consciously crafted to be folded into the Brahmanic fold uh, with this sort of, you know, regal power overlay in this, and, and Indra himself. I mean, the part of the symbology of the goddess is, is emblematic of, of sovereignty is the fact that she directly restores Indra's throne in, in, in the two substantive myths. I mean, this is, and yet you get the sense that there's stuff going on on the ground <laughs> that are assimilated. There are, there, there are ancient Shakta, maybe even tantric practices that are, you know, tribal peripheral traditions that are assimilated into this, you know, Brahmanic royal figure. Mm. It's, it's fascinating, but I think, um, well, this enough about my scholarship and Enough about the uh, enough about the nerdy pieces. Let me try to keep it accessible. But sorry, go on. I, I would just say, n- not necessarily assimilated peripheral traditions assimilated into the Brahminical tradition, but local traditions that are independent of the Brahminical tradition that have absolutely no touch point, no relationship to it, that have been operating independently of it. And the, in fact, you know, this is sort of the, the point I, 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 I don't know how to r- really articulate it necessarily, but, but just showing that in the, the textual tradition, as the pole is being returned or is being brought from, from the, the, the forest to the city, there's this two and a half day gap, right, where, where the texts say nothing about it, but there's probably, as there is in Kathmandu, something else going on that that really elucidates something primary um, and and basic about the festival and and the culture. And I think what we see throughout the the Indra festival, and you know, the scholars have for for you know a century have gone back and forth uh, about how to incorporate. The, this very thing, the Brahminical and the local. They said, you know, this doesn't make sense. They're two totally different festivals. Um, or, or the, you know, the, the, the textual predominates over the local. It's always both and. In the it's context. always both it's and. It's always both and. 
this is where scholars get into the most trouble because the strength of scholarship and and really the apollonia or the left brain impulses slicing and dicing and parsing you know you know what what kind of x is this or sub you know what is this and yet that you know one has to have this consciousness of multi-perspectival thinking and holding paradox this is what narrative does right and 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 it's both ends (laughs) Absolutely. And, and I think in, in this case, and, and, and probably in, you know, in the case of the Goddess Festival as well, it's, it's not only both and, but it's, you know, multi, it's three, it's four, it's half a dozen different things that over, over centuries and millennia have, have come together. And, you know, and I, I always going, go into it knowing that, assuming that this makes sense, this makes sense that these different pieces are celebrated together during these eight days in the month of Bhadrapad. And it, it's our job, so this the scholar's job to, to sort Absolutely. of start there. And 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 also the, you know there are two or three analogies I return to for um studying religion. And my two favorite, and like depending on the audience, I suppose is food analogies or uh, music analogies. One could be a, a music historian and, and not necessarily have rhythm and pitch and one could just jam and not really care when the violin was invented etc or whatever or you know yeah you know um similar with food i mean we we look at this we're like oh wait a minute there are chinese and spanish ingredients here and there's curry powder what do we do but in the dish once you experience it it works right you know depending on what food show you're watching it may not work and you make it to the next round but but it works experientially like the the syncretism works and one of the truths I keep coming back to in terms of studying all things Indic is, you know, South Asia is such an incredibly syncretic soil. And there's just sort of, and it goes sometimes counter to what we, what we counter in, in religiosity and religions where we'll, we'll, we'll branch off and start this and not that, but this now, not that, but this now. Whereas you see almost the opposite. We'll take that in too. We'll take that in too. We'll take that in too. Right. So oh, it's, it's, it's curry. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, <laughs> and and the nutritionist may or not be the nutritionist or the or, or 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 the chemist may or may not be able to make sense of it. But as long as it it's, it works on the palate, you're good. Right. Yeah. It's it's vindaloo, right? With with the Dutch peppers brought brought from the Caribbean. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, the, so many. What would you say to crudely generalize? What's the purpose of the festival? What does the festival do? What's its purpose? In 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 a nutshell, I I I use the phrase uh, kingship and kinship, and again, that's that's the that's the local festival, that's the Kathmandu festival, that uh, that the early medieval texts are not discussing, right? They're they're talking about the king, the 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 royal pole, everything revolves around that. And and the, the striking thing to me seeing the festival, especially for the first time, is, you know, even though intuitively I sort of knew that the big tall Indra pole that stands at the center of the festival, I knew that it it wouldn't move or anything. It's not gonna like go on parade, right? And and it doesn't, right? It just stands there and people walk by, sort of look at it, uh, sometimes, sometimes uh make a quick pranam uh to it, throw a coin or flower in the general direction, and then move on. 
and the the the, the stability of the Interpol is countered by the extraordinary dynamic nature of absolutely everything that's going on around it which is sort of ironic that 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 this this central item in the in in the classical festival doesn't really it doesn't really do anything, right? It doesn't really draw people's attention, except as sort of a sort of a curiosity. Um, but it's everything else that people are are attentive to. It's the the goddess tradition, <clears throat> especially in the form of the goddess Kumari, the 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 young girl uh, who uh, whose chariot goes on three processions through the city. It's Bhairav who takes these takes many different forms as as uh, headless masks, statues, and uh, especially one really uh, uh, interesting, noteworthy dancer, uh, a character named Lake, who's got his own neighborhood in the, the southern part of the city. Uh, the processions led by Indra's mother, Dagi, uh, who leads the ancestors. Um, it's it, it's it's this this notion of, of of kingship and kinship that that are brought together right this notion of you know if we want to call it syncretism or holism or uh you know or vindaloo uh it's it's all these different things that that happen simultaneously that really you 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 could never anticipate this by simply reading the the classical sources um even from you know the the, the later medieval tradition none of that stuff is uh, is there uh and that's what really makes makes the tradition a a, a living dynamic festival tradition that people are uh, that are that that they're they're drawn to right and and it always makes me wonder what happened in the medieval tradition outside of this sort of stability that the texts describe at the poles entrance into the city there are singers and dancers and courtesans but really what happens over the next 4 days while the pole is still up you know, there, there's no record of that because it did not fit the royal narrative of the, the support of the king. So it didn't didn't make the cut. Uh, it wasn't sort of worth describing, quote unquote, whereas the festival on the ground adds a sort of dynamism, the, the kinship. There are there are, in fact, smaller poles that are installed throughout the city <clears throat> that mirror uh, the, the the tall Indra pole at the center, uh, and those are local family ancestral poles. You know, w- w- was that kind of thing? Were those installed during the early medieval tradition? Also, you know, there's 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 no way of of knowing how this was practiced and what the local dynamism uh, that mirrored that that stability that we see in the texts. Nevertheless, I think laudable to have an awareness to to leave space for that and have an awareness not. Not to fall into the the trap, but you know the, the text is the people, and that's what we have to go by, and uh, that's how text function in this culture. And and texts are never complete without contexts, but but to have awareness, just 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 to be like, well, of course there was a long-standing goddess festival before the crafting of the Devi Mahatmya. Clearly, we don't know, but conjecture, you know, it's, it's sensible. Uh, of course, you know, we have a wisp of the king offering the blood of his own limbs in the, in the, in the the final chapter to as, as an acts of worship, uh, part of his puja to, to the deity. But you know, this just might be a product of imagination, or this may well be just a, a hint at, you know, the, the thousands of buffaloes that are being sacrificed, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. And so, so just the awareness that there's so much more 
happening on the ground that we can see in a text and even a text even a text where we have a present oral tradition around the text whatever that is um or anything a school of vedanta the yoga sutras what what have you a particular uh, type of tantric ritual you will learn so much more from the person teaching it than is actually written in the sense you have seen this time and time and time again so i think it's really cool that you're you're holding space for that reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned animal sacrifices and that's something that's, that, that predominates in, in, uh, Nepalese culture, uh, generally Newar and, and others and the Indra festival, you know, you go to the forest where the Indra pole is where the tree is cut down, right. And a goat is offered to the tree ahead of time, right. As, as one of the first things that, that happens there, uh, and that's where where again the text and practice come to come together a little bit. The 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 goat offering is not there in the texts, but the exorcism of the 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 boot prey, right? The 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 ghosts and 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 uh, sort of demonic uh, frightening local forest denizens. They are there in the tree, and those have to be exorcised in order to make way for. Uh, for this to be a royal pole, how is that done? And you know, what was a goat offered in in the textual in in early medieval India? All right, we don't know, uh, but certainly that's done now, and certainly contributes to the tantric nature of the Indra festival. Also, what do you most hope folks would take away from this work? Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's th- this this part of the conversation that that we're having now, uh, and it's something that I. I, I come back to throughout the text probably too frequently, um, but knowing that that we, we we don't have to negate the the textual tradition, we know that we shouldn't negate certainly the the oral living tradition as well. But I also don't want to overcorrect, and I want to read this first book of the Mahabharata with the a story of the origin of the Indra festival, right? And, and that's where I think there's an archaism going on there. I think it's um, it's sort of re- reading that back into, into village India or sort of a post-Vedic India or something. Um, but I, I want the textual tradition to be part of it still, but we have to read both the the textual and the performative tradition in relationship to one another right mm. and so we we see this uh in in the mahabharata we see this story of the origin of the festival how is that relevant how might that text have been composed as a way to foreground some of the things that the authors and audience already knew was going on what is that point where we we can read the the critical edition of the mahabharata and say oh it it's clear that they've seen this festival festival before and they're writing it in such a way as to make it look archaic to the people who already know that this is a large urban festival now we're creating uh, in this narrative, in this in this myth, a a sort of hypothetically simple village version of the festival that that highlights these these differences between what we've already seen on the ground. So what are again? What are those those points of of contact? What are the gaps in the textual tradition where? where the the readers of that text again are are aware of what those gaps are they're aware of what the references are because they've seen it already happen on the ground Mm, yeah it's fascinating 
I spend purposefully most of my emphasis as a scholar uh, in the world of the text. And so I purposefully, I mean, I'm not saying you should do the same. I'm saying that for me, it's fascinating that, listen, we don't know if there were reformers torments in ancient India who performed the Vedic sacrifice, but we know that they were crucial to the Indic imaginaire. And this tells us something about the people who author the text, that this is of great value. Yeah. So the story world can be quite instructive about what people valued or imagined or did. Certainly what they prescribed, not what they described. Who knows where one ends and begins. Um, for my final question today, I'm wondering, one wonders, I, have you been sated with this Indra Vindaloo? Uh, or, or will you be, what's next for you? Is there, uh, will you be studying another aspect of the festival or will you be taking a break from this or what's, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm currently writing an introduction to Hinduism for, uh, for a major press. And I, I hope to bring this same sort of um, sort of uh, sort of vindaloo to to undergraduate students, um, which is will be a little more difficult, I, I think. But I'm I, I want to bring Nepal into the mix. Uh, I want to bring the South Asian diaspora into the mix. Um, I want to look at the relationships between, you know, I, I, not just text and practice, but uh, practices on the ground in South Asia and uh, uh, practices in, for example, temp different temples in Queens that I've been to. Um, I've tried to, to kind of sit in New York uh, City for a bit uh, and visit different different temples. And I've seen uh, a wild really wide variety uh, of different sorts of uh, sort of communities there. Uh, and that's the sort of mix that I, I, I hope to bring to undergrads um, in this text while also moving through the Vedic and the early medieval and bhakti traditions and sant traditions. Um, so it's, it's, it's that sort of mix. Um, I think uh, I'm, I'm editing a, sh a short collection, small collection of, uh, of essays on the Indra Festival for, uh, for another journal uh, that'll hopefully see the, the light of day uh, uh, soon. And that will bring in, again, some of the early medieval, some of the contemporary newar, and then also a, uh, a, Jain, uh, a Jain Indra Festival in, in uh, Jaipur. And what, the, the next thing that uh, I don't know that uh, that I'm going to do this, but I think one one further direction for the Indra Festival is uh, the the diaspora. Uh, when we have Newar and Nepalese folks in the diaspora outside of Nepal, in Sikkim, in Australia, in Baltimore, uh, and a couple of other places in Queens, um, what does the Indra Festival look like there? And they are communities are have begun to celebrate the Indra festival in certain ways as a marker of identity and uh from from what little I know it's very different from uh from what we see in Nepal both the local tradition and the revived early medieval tradition but there are some of these elements that are making it into the the diaspora there uh that are uh, that are pretty interesting so I was a, probably a touch more into the details in this podcast and typical because, you know, my, my dharma is as podcast host as I see it anyhow is to keep things accessible. But I was joking in the back of my brain that not only does the goddess live upstate New York, but Indra <laughs> lives Indra lives in Queens. <laughs> Indra lives in, in Queens. Yeah. Yeah. So the I've just seen clips of Indra's elephant, for example, who's a major uh, ritual character in the festival. Uh, and and he is he will run and uh, and 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 
pounce about uh, in the uh, the Jackson Heights neighborhood in in Queens, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in in the world. You will also find Indra's elephant there, uh, right next to the Momo stall. Fascinating. So we'll have to have you back on the podcast to discuss um, this innovative uh, uh, world religions intro Hinduism textbook that you're working on. That will be fun. Absolutely. Sounds great. All right. Well, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Raj. Have a good day. For those listening, uh, we, of course, have been talking about Indra, who um, not only exists in the ancient Vedic hymns, but is alive and well in the festival of Indra, as described in this book by uh, Michael Baltudis. Uh, Until next time, keep well, keep listening. Keep reading and keep contemplating the interplay between textual traditions and lived religions. Take care.